Are you an early stage founder looking to grow your SaaS? The SaaS Doc Founder Membership is a private community of ambitious SaaS founders where you can get a support network of peers, connect with like-minded founders around the globe, and learn proven strategies from industry experts to help you scale up your SaaS. If you want to get access to peer groups, investor meetings, mentor hours, and more to help you scale faster together, then visit sasdoccom forward slash founder hyphen membership to apply, or just go to sasdoccom and go up to the header menu and click on memberships. And even your application form, if it's right for you, mention the SAS Revolution show to apply for an exclusive discount. Find your SAS tribe and thrive with the SAS Doc Founder membership. This podcast is sponsored by G2, the place for buying, selling, and reviewing software. All audiences aren't built equally. Learn to connect with interested and engaged buyers at the right time with G2 Buyer Intent. Uncover who's researching your product so you know when to reach out and what to say. Sell more and close bigger deals by sending personalized messages directly to buyers ready to talk tech. G2, smarter software decisions made together. Join the community at www.sell.g2.com slash This podcast is sponsored by Chargeify. Chargeify provides specialized billing and data management tools to give B2B SaaS companies the competitive edge. Over the past 12 years, Chargeify has partnered with champions in SaaS like SpendSpark, Mailgun, Connect, and Earthclass Mail to streamline their billing processes, build and nurture lasting relationships with customers, and strategically optimize their organizations for long-term growth. Chargeify's innovative software empowers every B2B SaaS company to step into the future of billing. Visit chargeify.com forward slash SaaSdoc to learn more. If you go back and look at these graphs of like HubSpot or Airbnb or any of these, you know, Slack, daily active users or what, you know, revenue or whatever, it's sort of like a hockey stick, right? It's like nothing, 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 bang. So this is a long journey of indeterminate length. First, it's just like abandon this idea or this illusion of certainty. There isn't a plan. There isn't going to be a timeline. What there's going to be is a process of rapid experimentation. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth, and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thumer, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today, and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution show, Matt Lerner, CEO of Startup Core Strengths. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Alex. A pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to have you on, on the podcast. We've had you speak at a couple of SaaS Doc events, I think in person and virtual, and uh, you're doing a workshop for the SaaS Doc founder members uh, next week, which will be virtual. Um, but great to have you on the podcast uh, for the first time. Um, uh, so well, welcome to the show. Uh, where are you dialing in from? I'm in Kingston upon Thames. So. Okay. Very nice. I haven't been there for years, but I used to go to a nightclub there when I was about 12. And obviously, I should have been 18, but uh, <laughs> they, they let anybody in. Um, I, don't, I can't even remember the name of it. Thanks for the tip. <laughs> yeah. um, if you have kids, like uh, just keep, keep them away from we'll it. Let them. Okay. 
Yeah, but um, but good stuff. So um, Matt, um, tell us a little bit uh, and, and tell the audience a little bit about who you are. You know, who's Matt Lerner uh, as a person, and we'll, we'll go a little bit into um, startup core strengths, and then um, we, we'll, we'll talk uh, a bit in depth about product market fit. So, uh, who is Matt Lerner uh, as a person? Sure thing. I mean, I, I guess it's obvious from my accent. I'm American. Um, and I guess I, I grew up, you know, I think back like through uni and such, I, I studied philosophy and interdisciplinary studies as an undergrad with a minor in cognitive psychology. And then I had a summer job working as a chemist in a refinery. So I was just sort of quite mixed background um, academically. But I think the, the common thread through my entire career has been that I like solving puzzles. And, um, you know, thinking through, working through things from first principles. And that's how, why, you know, when I eventually got into the startup world and venture capital investing and even starting my own business, you know, the, for me, the, the most fun challenges of the business is where there is no playbook, um, where it's a bit of a puzzle you've got to figure out. So uh, that's me. Uh, and um, so you're an American in Kingston upon Thames. How, <laughs> how, how did that happen? Tell us a bit about that. Um, and also, uh, I believe you worked at, uh, at PayPal um, and also 500 startups, measure venture capital, so you're working at 500 startups as well. So tell us a little bit about that experience and how that's kind of shaped you into, I guess, kind of where you are now. Yeah, sure. Um, so a bit of my sort of pottered professional history and how it ended up bringing me to Kingston-upon-Thames of all places. Um, so, the, you know, I, I, I was working for startups in Silicon Valley in kind of the late 90s. And the first startup I joined cratered. Um, the second startup I joined cratered even faster. You know, this is, this is what startups do. But the third one, we actually managed to get some traction and we ended up selling it to a company that some of your listeners might remember called Macromedia. Uh, you know, they made Dreamweaver and Flash. Um, so we sold to them for about 40 million, which wasn't a, a bad exit back in the day. Um, and, you know, and I was selling products to web developers. So then after that, I ended up getting approached by some folks at PayPal um, in about 2004 because you know, they had sort of realized that if you're trying to get payments integrated with a website, it goes through the web developer. Uh, so I originally joined PayPal in 2004 to do developer marketing. And um, you know, they had just at that point just been acquired by eBay. So it was kind of a weird cultural shift because you had some of the old school, you know, PayPal scrappy, type startup types and then you had a bunch of like Bain consultants and MBAs in there kind of doing the eBay thing. Um, and just over the years, the company, you know, the company I joined was this scrappy startup. The company I left was making over 10 billion a year. Um, so I kind of learned a lot as the company scaled through those different stages, building and running marketing teams and, you know, even general management roles. Um, in 2012, I had the opportunity to move to PayPal UK as a general manager, uh, which for me was just amazing. You know, whenever I traveled internationally, I just, I love what was happening in the regional offices and a chance to live and work in another country. As it happens, my, my wife was a scientist and she did her PhD in the UK, uh, had a lot of friends here already and was, you know, quite happy to get back here. So it worked out well for both of us. Um, and then in 2015, after 11 years, I ended up leaving PayPal. Uh, I think, you know, just say my learning curve had sort of plateaued. And I had a chance to become an early stage VC and join the fund 500 Startups as a partner in Europe. And I think that's when we met. And, you know, it, it's a fantastic job. 
um, being a VC, I don't need to tell you, but you, you know, you see rapid fire dozens, hundreds of companies are pitching you, you see their decks, you meet the founders, you see their metrics. And you know, for me, I was sort of like this super deep marketer, like I was selling payment processing to SMEs for the last 10 years. And then so to sort of suddenly go super wide and start to look at pattern match across different businesses and what works and what doesn't. So it was a great learning opportunity. I ended up backing 35 companies um, in my time there, and some of them have been very successful, you know, have grown 10, 20, 50, even 100x. Um, but I think my main takeaway from there is that there's a lot of people in Europe who can invest in companies. There are not too many people who know how to grow, a, really know how to grow a startup. And a lot of the companies that I was seeing and that I was interacting with were really, you know, kind of either guessing or trying to do like scaled down versions of, of how big companies grow and just stuff that, that I knew wasn't going to work and you could see wasn't working. And so that's why um, I decided to leave and join, found Startup Core Strengths. And so my business now, it's sort of, it's like a virtual accelerator where you work hands-on with experienced, you know, people who have built, grown and started and scaled startups to kind of sort out, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about today, like how do you find product market fit and what are the right metrics and what are the right hires at early stage and sort of how do you write that, that playbook for growth? So that's how I spend my time these days is just working hands-on with early stage startups, helping them find product market fit and write their playbooks uh, for how they're going to scale. Amazing. Well, th thanks for the background. And what a, I mean, a great place, a great journey, but also a great place to be right now. Something that obviously we love doing at SaaStock, working with these you know, early stage founders and startups and you, you know, uh, doing our best to, to help them grow and achieve product market fit and get investment and, and scale their businesses. And uh, super rewarding uh, position, obviously, when you, you, know, you can help, uh, uh, well, as many, as many founders uh, uh, as we can. Um, so you mentioned about uh, product market fit. And, and again, I know that you, I think you spoke about this uh, last year when we did the SaaStock sessions, uh, sort of like new marketing during the time of crisis. And, um, and uh, a topic, again, that you know very well is you, you, you're running this uh, in-depth in workshop with the SaaStock founder members uh, next week. Um, and yeah, so we see it uh, obviously at the early stage, and uh, I guess everyone's like, you know, a very common problem. We surveyed our founder members sort of, you know, recently and were like, you know, what topics do you want to see, uh, you, you know, for, for the founder memberships and workshop offering? Uh, and PMF was like, you know, I was going through the answers PMF, 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 finding, you know, product market fit, et cetera. Um, so I thought it, it's just, Great timing. Let's you know. Let's use the the data, the, the need there to to discuss that uh, and and get into it. And um, uh, and so yeah. So so th th there's a number of things uh, that, that we kind of want to through uh, run through. Um, but you're you're the expert uh, sort of uh, on this, right? So let, let's talk about what companies and what the founders that are kind of listening uh, need to do. You, you know, and need to think about to get sort of product market fit. And so perhaps sort of starting off with the, the metrics. Uh, if, if you want to start there, um, and, and we'll go through some of the other points. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first of all, like I already think it sounds like your audience, and whenever I speak at your events, you have you assemble the most impressive people, which is why I'm I'm always happy to, anytime I get an opportunity to participate in your events. Um, I mean, it sounds like your audience have already kind of, if they're asking about product market fit, they've overcome the first risk, which is just sort of assuming it will work or, you know, trying to scale something before you have product market fit. So just, you know, even just being open to the fact that you don't have it, 
actually is like skipping about 70% of the, the messiness. So metrics is, is, a criti- is the place I start with companies because if you have a good team, you get what you measure. I mean, if you don't have a good team, like that's a whole nother ball of wax, but if you have a good team, you get what you measure. And I think the mistake is that people sort of look at post-product market fit companies and say, well, you know, their target metric is revenue. It's free cash flow. That's how you run a company. We need to go make revenue. And, you know, <laughs> certainly you could be forgiven for thinking that. It's not entirely heresy to think you should make revenue. But before you have product market fit, you've got to understand that revenue is an output. And the input is that you need to be able to attract and engage customers. And so you need to focus the entire team before you have product market fit on getting really good at attracting and engaging customers. Now, the reason I make that distinction is because there's lots and lots of ways to increase revenue. You can do it with short-term promotions. You can do it with bundling strategies. There's all this stuff that doesn't create customer value and doesn't get you any closer to product market fit. You can do consulting work that does make revenue. So normally the way you do this, and if you've heard, you know, most like famous startups have this, you'll have a North Star metric, which is not revenue, but it's some number that increments every time value is delivered to a customer. So Facebook's North Star is daily active users. Amazon is repeat customers. When I was at PayPal, it was gross uh, total payment volume. So the amount of money sent through the system. Because if someone sends money through PayPal and receives money, value is being delivered. So these companies will figure out what is your North Star metric that indicates you're delivering value to customers and then work backwards and say, okay, what are the one to three biggest levers we can pull to make that number go up? And so like for Amazon, I know it's, it's not a SaaS business, but it's a good simple example. And this, this actually hasn't changed since 1997 for their e-commerce business. It's price selection and convenience. And if you look at Amazon's business, like they don't do anything that isn't price you know, their e-commerce business, it isn't price selection or convenience. They don't do graphic design. They don't do nice trucks or good delivery service. They don't do brand. They really just do those three things. So sorting out what is your North Star metric and then what are the kind of the strongest levers you can pull to hit that is where I think SaaS companies need to start on the journey to find product market fit. And what about the um, the, the challenges uh, that, that companies kind of face uh, I guess, kind of, you know, in order to make sure that they're choosing that, that right sort of focus area. Um, what, what are some of those that you see? I think it's, you know, it's the, the fact that you're asking again, what's the focus area is already super important because I think the first mistake is people just think they need to like do all the stuff they make a huge plan and they try to do everything. And, you know, there, there's no, this sounds kind of cliche, but there's no points for effort. You don't get prizes for effort in startups. You know, when PayPal, when we were trying to kind of knock over a piece of the credit card associations and the banks and take a big bite out of eBay, they had hundreds of thousands of employees. They had hundreds of millions in revenue. You're not going to outwork, you know, Airbnb isn't going to outwork the hotel industry. They're not going to outspend the hotel industry. It's really about which work you do. Because if you've ever been part of a really successful growth story, you know that 90% of your results end up coming from about 10% of the stuff you do. You know, at PayPal, we only really ever leaned on about five levers to drive growth. You know, eBay and shopping carts and hosts and web developers and a bit of inbound, you know, sales. Kind of drove all of their growth. That's not all we did. We, we did tons of stuff. We launched these mobile apps no one used. We redesigned the logo a couple times. You know how much time and money it costs to change the logo in a corporation? None of this stuff did anything. 
But if you're a little startup, you don't have 10,000 employees and you know, 10 billion in, in revenue to go try stuff that doesn't work, you've got to figure out what is that 10% really quickly. And so that's why I say, what are those key drivers? Sort of if you work backwards, where's the biggest leverage? So for example, um, your companies will spend a ton of money on Facebook advertising. It kind of works, it kind of doesn't work. And they're like, well, Facebook doesn't work for us. We need a better Facebook advertiser. Well, Facebook works. Like it's not, Facebook's not broken, right? There are plenty of companies making money on Facebook. So you're probably focused in the wrong area. It's probably what, you know, what's happening to that traffic. Are you sending them to a compelling page? Is your conversion rate 10 or 20 or 30% to a free trial or book a demo? If it is, Facebook's working for you. If it's not, then Facebook probably isn't the problem. It's, it's probably finding language market fit. It's probably something around your proposition. So that, that's kind of one common example. But the main point here is if 90% of your results come from 10% of the work you do, you have to be really honest with yourself and good at figuring out, don't try to do everything, but what's that 10%? What's the stuff that can really be big for us? How do you find, like, finding that 10%? Like, what, what are some of the things that, as you say, you need to do? I mean, you talk about obviously working backwards, but saying, like, yeah, how, how would we get to that? Yeah. So first thing is, you know, back to the metrics. If you sort of map the entire business out as an equation, right? Okay, so we get traffic, some percentage of those visitors convert to a lead, some percent of those leads are marketing qualified, some percent of them are sales qualified, blah, 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 all the way through to monthly recurring revenue. You can map that out. And the first thing is just to identify, like, where's the bottleneck in that system? Um, you know, I told you I, in uni, I worked in a refinery and it's literally like, you know, dirty oil comes in one end and clean oil comes out the other. And the entire throughput of the system is governed by some bottleneck in there somewhere. There's some pipe or some machine. It's the narrowest point in the entire system. And if you can find it and open it up, the whole system runs faster. Well, same thing, right? There's a bottleneck in your funnel, in your business somewhere. I don't know if it's conversion of visits to lead or retention or, you know, revenue per user, whatever it is. You got to figure out what that bottleneck is. And first of all, just focus on that and stop doing things that don't impact that. And now the other piece of that is just, you can sort of do a, a simple mathematical experiment on paper and say, if we absolutely get this right, could this 10 X the business, right? You know, if, if your sales team is closing 70% of their sales qualified leads, you can't do anything to that. That's going to 10 X your business. You can only get from 70% to hundred percent and you're probably hitting diminishing returns. So just ask yourself on paper, you know, how big could this be? Okay, we're gonna do some PR, we get a bunch of press coverage. How much traffic could that get us? Will we keep getting that traffic or will it go away after the press coverage? So the next piece is just to take all your ideas and just ask yourself like, how big could this be if it really works? So then you've got a bunch of ideas, you're trying to narrow down to the most impactful stuff. Ask yourself, one, is it focused on the bottleneck? And then two, if this works, could it be really big? And if it doesn't pass those two tests, and you're a little startup and you got 10 employees and 300 grand in the bank or whatever, like don't do it, <laughs> just do something else. What about in terms of then when you've got like key assumptions around the business, when you, you think you, you're getting to like product market fit at that initial kind of phase, but you really wanna deepen that fit and then you, you wanna, then you think you're ready to kind of like scale up. How do we validate those, those key assumptions, you know, at that point to kind of say, okay, we do have it, and now we really kind of want to deepen it and go for it. So like, how do you know when you have product market fit? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Easy way of saying it, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, 
The, the joking answer I give people is I say, if you're not sure, you don't. Um, you know, I think, I forget who said this, a very wise person said that looking for product market fit is like pushing a boulder up a hill. And um, having product market fit is like chasing a boulder down a hill. And that, both of those are hard work, but very different kind of work. So um, if you have very good unit economics on your acquisition, if you, know, you can hire salespeople off the street and with some basic training, they can sell your product, right? Then you've got product market fit. If you're getting customers coming in the door you've never met before and you ask, how'd you hear about us? And they tell you that they heard about you through someone else that you've never met or heard of before, right? When things really just start ticking over and you start to feel that flywheel effect, that's fantastic. That's what it means to have product market fit. And at that point, again, you've got to figure out like, okay, what's causing this? What is the playbook? Which, which things that we're doing are working? And that's going to be, you know, which messages are, which, who's our, what's our ideal customer profile? Who's really buying this? You know, in B2B, who in the organization, if it's a consumer, you know, who are these people and what are they specifically trying to do that we're helping them do? And then how are they finding out about us? Like what are the main channels that we know are working for us? Because there, you know, there just aren't that many channels out there, right? There's inbound and SEO, there's paid channels, there's virality and referral and word of mouth, there's you know, banging the phones and outbound. That's kind of it. So like which, or and partnerships, yeah. So which of these channels is really working for us? And then double down on what's working and just, I say like spend 70% of your resources and your energy just blitz scaling and trying to max out what's working and then spend 30% of it starting to experiment and say, okay, well, this is great, but we're kind of a one trick pony on this one channel or this one audience. Where's our next S curve of growth going to come from? So keep 30% of your resources, continuing to explore customers, product features, channels, and see where you can sort of get that next S curve of growth. What are, what are the, the pitfalls or the common mistakes <clears throat> that companies making that kind of take them away from from actually you know getting product market fit where they i guess they think they're they're getting it but actually they're probably not near it and and, and they're making these sort of common mistakes what, what do you see uh, that are the pitfalls so you know we've we've talked about a lot of them i think it's kind of implicit in what we've talked about but you know the first one is thinking that like you have the playbook already you have a plan to do this you know, if you're trying to grow an established company, things are fairly predictable. You know what works for you. You can set your revenue targets and maybe you're at 40% year on year and you want to make it 60% year on year. And you'll know by March if you're on track or not because March is going to look a lot like February is going to look a lot like January. But if you're pre-product market fit, you just don't have that predictability. You know, if you've seen these, if you go back and look at these graphs of like HubSpot or Airbnb or any of these, you know, Slack, daily active users or what, you know, revenue or whatever, it's sort of like a hockey stick, right? It's like nothing, 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 bang. So, and these companies, like I think Notion was working on their product. I think Ivan was working on Notion for 10 years before it sort of became an overnight success. Slack was about seven years. Airbnb took about five years. Like this is a long journey of indeterminate length and it, you don't see that sort of incremental progress. So the first thing is like, you know, especially like as a VC, you'd see people coming in with their pitch decks and here's our three-year revenue forecast. It's like you have like almost no customers or revenue. How are you going to make a three-year revenue forecast? So first it's just like abandon this idea or this illusion of certainty. There isn't a plan. There isn't going to be a timeline. What there's going to be is a process of rapid experimentation. 
So you've got a hypothesis about the customer, about the message, about the channel, about a, a referral partnership, about which features you want to talk about. Just get those things, you know, build, measure, learn. Get those things in market and test them as quickly as you can. And, you know, every step, every iteration of that journey, like Slack, seven years, Airbnb for five years, they weren't just sitting around and playing Xbox. They were trying stuff. They were experimenting and getting smarter and learning. So I guess back to answer your question, like mistake number one is just to sort of assume you've got, that there's a playbook or a plan and just go execute it. Um, and just, if it's not working, like keep putting more money and hiring more people and buying more ads and raising more money. That's not it. Like you've got to go find product market fit. And I think that that ends up kind of putting your new hires in a bad position too. I think people are very quick to say, okay, you know, we're just going to go out and hire a, you know, a genius head of growth who's done this before and knows how to do it. And the problems with that, first of all, the, the companies you're going to hire them from already have their playbooks sorted. So this person's skill set, if they're successful at a, a scale up, is running the playbook. And you need a different skill set. You need like figure out the playbook. So the first thing is you're hiring for someone different. But the, the other piece of it is like growth can't just be a silo in a startup. In a big company, you've got your marketing team and you know, blah, 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 and hand, hand off to the sales team and you know, to product managers, goes to engineering. In a startup, when it's time to grow, the entire company needs to focus on growth because a lot of times your, your growth is going to come from product features. Your insights are going to come from analytics, your you know, customer feedback is coming from the sales team. And you know, if there's only eight or 15 or 20 of you in the company, you, you can't have silos. Like Your one advantage you have as a startup over these big companies is that you can align and be nimble and change directions quickly. And if you start creating all these process silos early on, like you're just you're kind of cutting off that one advantage you have. So the other big mistake I think is this idea of just like we're going to hire a marketing person, give them a marketing budget, they're going to build a marketing team and we're going to grow. And really it's just know that you're going to have to figure this out. It's going to take your whole team and you need to hire people who are good at trying stuff and figuring stuff out, not like the person who went and did this at this other company. Let's re recap then on uh, let's say the top sort of three uh, three to five things that uh, that the listeners can do to achieve to PMF, um, and, and then we'll, we'll come on to uh, uh, startup core strengths. So I've got a, cu a couple of questions that uh, uh, after that. Okay, sure. So yeah, let's go back over this. So the first thing we talked about was metrics. You get what you measure. So align, figure out your north star metric, and align the whole team around it. And that mean, when I say align, I mean you should be able to go to any employee in your company and say, how does your work impact our North Star metric? And that's going to encourage them to make good decisions about which work they do, which is kind of point two is 90% of your results are going to come from 10% of your work. So which work everybody does is actually super, super important. And so you can use that North Star metric to force this conversation with each person about which work are you doing. And then, you know, really only do the stuff that can potentially have a really big impact. Now, in the case of a lot of companies, that impact is not at the level of like, which channels are we using? Or are we any good at Facebook advertising or SEO? It's not about how much money you raise. It's much more around kind of actually locking in product market fit, finding a proposition, an ideal customer profile, and channels that are going to work. And so you pursue that through this process of experimentation of like, let's try this. Is this getting us closer or not to driving our customer engagement, to getting our North Star metric? Um, so that's kind of it. You know, if you run through this with a metrics-driven process of rapid experimentation with the idea of being able to find customers, 
and engage them and get them using your product, then you know the work you do is going to cause learning. The learning is going to cause customer engagement, and customer engagement will cause revenue. Like it's not that hard to monetize a SaaS business that has really good engaged customers. So that's kind of my quick summary. Amazing. Uh, thanks, Matt. And and so startup four strengths. You uh, as you said, it's like a remote, like virtual accelerator. Um, you got a new cohort like starting uh, soon-ish. Where, where when's that? Yeah, June first. We we've actually just opened applications. I'm not sure what date this is going out, but applications uh, are due May nineteenth. And and when? Um, so what sort of person would benefit from you know who's the ICP for for startup core strengths? Yeah, so we tend to work with seed and Series A startups. Um, really kind of vertical agnostic. We have coaches in there who have done mobile app distribution, enterprise B2B SaaS. But I think these are companies who are ready at this point to, like I said, turn the entire company's focus to growth. So if you're still building and launching your product, this isn't the right time. If you're in the middle of a fundraising, this isn't the right time. But companies who are really ready to say, okay, let's align the entire company, write our growth playbook, figure out what are going to be our levers, you know, the best channels for us, lock in language market fit, figure out what is our North Star metric and align the team around this metrics driven process of experimentation. If that can be a priority for you right now, if the stuff that you're doing isn't working, then that's kind of the ideal customer for us. Awesome. And where, where can people uh, go to find out more on, uh, on that and apply if, if they're the right fit? Yeah, so our website is startupcorestrengths.com. Uh, all one word, startup core strengths. And also on there, there's a section um, called learn where I've put up a bunch of resources. There's like a marketing strategy template. If you just want to kind of think through from first principles, what should our marketing strategy be? Um, I've got an ebook with some tips on hiring. There's a bit of stuff on language market fit, product market fit as well. So there's a bunch of free resources on the site as well. So if you want to check it out, startupcorestrengths.com. Amazing. I think you recently just did up the website. I saw it change. It's looking uh, looking very good. Um, so, uh, uh, so yeah, good job on on, on that. And really excited uh, for the workshop uh, next week, Matt, for the for the SASDOC founder members. Um, I think this will go out after uh, that workshop, uh, but I know it's going to be a great in depth workshop on, uh, on on product market fit. Um, and if anybody's interested in uh, more learning more about how to become a, a SASDOC founder member. Just go to sasbot.com and uh, look at memberships on the, the header menu and you'll find out more uh, on that. But Matt, uh, thanks so much. Uh, great speaking to you. Um, you know, always great to uh, share the topic of, of PMF and I say like, in, in more depth next week at the workshop. Uh, but uh, it, it's been a pleasure and thanks for, for sharing your time uh, and knowledge with the, with the SASBOT audience. My pleasure. You ask, uh, you ask exactly the right questions. It's always great talking to you, Alex. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaS Doc conferences around the world.